John both mentioned, uh, I want to welcome especially our children uh, to our service. Uh, normally during the school year, our children uh, go to uh, a special children's service for them, but during the summer, uh, we uh, have felt like it's good for our children to be in here. Uh, it's good for our children to, to not only watch us, uh, they normally stay for the musical part of the worship service, but we also feel like it's good for them to stay in here during the preaching of the Word so that they can hear the preaching of the Word, so that they can be with you, their parents, during the preaching of the Word. And so, um, so kids, it's good to have you in here. And uh, the expectation I would have is that your parents may ask you some questions on the way home about what was uh, going on during the preaching. If your parents fall asleep, you can elbow them. And uh, the, the other thing that I want parents especially to hear is... Uh, um, we expect five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds to wiggle around and to rustle papers and to ask to go to the restroom uh, many times, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. We are a family here, and so we are going to give our children uh, much grace. So um, we are, if, uh, hopefully, if, as uh, John read the scripture, we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. Um, we've been going through the book of Romans. Uh, we, last week, I completed Romans chapter 9. Uh, and if you've been with us as we've gone through Romans chapter 9, one of the things that I have referenced uh, quite a bit is um, uh, how Romans 9 and the book of John in particular, but uh, the book of John in general, but in particular, uh, John chapter 3, in a lot of ways, mirrors uh, Romans chapter 9 and 10. And so I, I wanted to go to John chapter 3 this morning and preach a sermon uh, since we finished uh, 9 last week and we'll be going uh, into chapter 10 next week. Um, and I really wanted to do it for two reasons. Uh, one is, um, you know, Romans 9 is difficult. And uh, one of the accusations I think that gets thrown out there is that if you believe in Romans 9, well, then, Lewis, you know, do you believe in... John 3.16, and the answer to that is yes. And so it's good for us to go there and to see that, that I, we as a church, we love, um, we, we love the whole Bible and we believe the whole Bible. The second reason is that I do want to go to John chapter 3 and I want you to see the similarities. So I want you to be listening. If you've been with us through our studies of Romans chapter 9, I want you to listen for the similarities. In many ways, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is almost a case study of Romans 9 and 10. And I hope that you, that you see this and hear this as we jump in there this morning. Now, Romans chapter 9, uh, it, it, was, it is a tough chapter, um, but I, I just want to go through some of the themes and then go right into Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus here. And, and if you remember, when, as we started Romans chapter 9, remember the big question was, is God a God who keeps His promises? And the question that was being uh, brought in Paul's mind as he was writing there to the church of Rome, uh, who had Jewish believers and Gentiles believers in it, is that, is the Word of God failing because the Jewish people are by and large in increasing numbers rejecting the Messiah, rejecting Jesus. And so Paul is making the case that God is faithful to his promise. Even though that the Jews are rejecting Jesus, God is faithful because God always has and God always will preserve a remnant that God never promises that all Israel um, will be saved, that God always has worked in, in the past through a remnant. Now, 
It also says, and this is the part that gets a little controversial, but it says that in Romans chapter 9, that, that not only does God uh, provide a remnant, but it tells us that the reason that we can stand and the reason that we can know that God's promises are true and sure is because God is the guarantee of those promises. He is the one that is making those promises come to pass. And we had many sermons on uh, election and what it means and what it doesn't mean, and we're not going to get all back into that. But I, I just want you to have the background as we jump into chapter 3 of the book of John and enter Nicodemus. Now, we're going we're gonna to work through here, and the first thing I want you to see is who is this man, Nicodemus. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so we know by the title, that he was a Pharisee, that this means that he was a very educated man. Uh, This is what it means to be a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures well. Not only do we see that he's a Pharisee, it also says that he's the ruler of the Jews. This meant that he was part of the Sanhedrin, part of the ruling body of the Jews. He is one of 70 individuals. And and, and this, this group, this body, was in charge of everything spiritual, everything religious uh, within the Jewish community. And Nicodemus was one of these. In verse 2, we see um, that he comes to Jesus. And we see what Nicodemus uh, thinks of Jesus. Uh, Look at verse 2 with me. It says, This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, notice what Nicodemus is wanting. Okay? Nicodemus, in coming to Jesus, is wanting Jesus to give an account of, of, of who he is. He has, Nicodemus has seen the signs. In fact, um, w- one of the difficult things about the way that the Bible is put together is that um, what we have in chapter 3 is a very bad chapter break. Um, this chapter, this account should really start in verse 23 of chapter 2. Look at this. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at Passover during the feast, many people believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So notice that Jesus is a, uh, that Nicodemus is approaching him here. He's calling him rabbi. He's calling him teacher. He's calling him man from God. He's wanting to know about these signs and these wonders that Jesus has been doing. And also notice this. Did you, did you catch here in verse 2? Uh, it says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Now there's two possibilities here. Either he has a mouse in his pocket, or, which is unlikely... Or he is coming, you know, with the authority of the council to investigate who Jesus was. That this is, this is what his purpose was. And um, what I love, what I love to see, what I love about Jesus um, is that we have Jesus here. We have Nicodemus coming with one purpose. And Jesus has quite another purpose for Nicodemus, doesn't he? That Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, wanting to figure out who this Jesus is. And Jesus, um, Jesus goes right at him. Look at verse 3. Notice there was not really a question asked of Jesus. Jesus answered and said to him, 
Think about how odd this would have been. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what I believe Jesus is doing here, and I think you see it all throughout this chapter, is that Jesus is going right after Nicodemus's bad theology. And I think you see it all throughout this chapter, that Jesus is going after Nicodemus's bad theology. The bad theology that Nicodemus had was that who he was because of how he was born, he was born a Jew, who he was because he was born a Jew, and what he had done, his accomplishments, his works, his attempts to keep the law, gave him a position in the kingdom of God that was false. And so we have Nicodemus coming on a false pretense, and Jesus, in his wisdom, goes right after Nicodemus, goes right after his bad theology. Now, what I'm wanting you to hear this morning, remember in Romans chapter 9, what is Paul going after in Romans chapter 9? He's going after the bad theology of the Jewish people that their birthright that because their thought that just because they were a Jew, it meant that they were uh, members of the kingdom of God. And Paul goes after him and says, absolutely not. That is not what gains you entrance into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is doing the same thing here with Nicodemus. Now, one of the things, just kind of a side note, but one of the things that I love that we see about Jesus here, and as we end, I'm going to talk a little bit about evangelism at the end and Uh, One of the reasons why Jesus can't be our model uh, for evangelism is because Jesus is God and we're not. Notice uh, Jesus over and over again as he's interacting with people. uh, Notice one of the things that he has that we don't. In in John chapter 1, starting in verse 47, when Jesus was calling Nathanael, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to them, said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Uh, We don't have that kind of power, do we? Um, In chapter 2, verse 25, notice what Jesus does here. Uh, uh, We read this verse earlier. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That when Jesus was interacting with people, he knew what was in their heart and he knew what was in their mind. Do you remember his interaction? It's in the next chapter with the woman at the well. Jesus had never met her before, but yet Jesus knew that she had had many husbands. He also knew where her thoughts were and what her need was and how to communicate that to her in a way where she would uh, be awakened and to see Jesus for who he was. And so we have Jesus doing this same thing with Nicodemus. And he's going right after this bad theology. And, 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 and not only in that, not only it's just this bad theology, but, you know, have you thought about this? Why does Jesus, and I think there's two reasons. One is uh, the birthright thing. Why would Jesus use the word that you must be born again? It can also be translated born from above. Because what I want you to hear is that not only is Jesus going after Nicodemus's identity in his birthright, but even in that statement, 
that you must be born again, he's going after the thought that Nicodemus could do anything to accomplish his own salvation, right? Think about it. Um, how many of you were born? All of us. Kids. See, my kids are on it in here. Thank you. Thank you. They are on it. Thank you, Parker. Um, thank you. Um, all of us were born. Now, what did we have to do with being born? Nothing. <laughs> we were just born. We were helpless, uh, but we were born. And so Jesus here is going right after Nicodemus and right after the bad theology uh, that Nicodemus has. And so we've seen who Nicodemus was. We see that Jesus goes right after what he's needed, what is needed, what he needs. And now we're going to see how one is born again. And we're going to see Jesus's teaching here on being born again. And what we know and what we should know from going through the book of Romans as well is this, that man in his natural state is fallen and can't, can't save himself. Man needs help. Something has to happen to him for him to be involved or initiated into the kingdom of God. So we see in verse 4, in chapter 3, that Nicodemus asks the right question. And you know, sometimes we throw rocks at uh, people like Nicodemus in verses like this, but imagine if you had no concept of what the, the phrase born again meant or uh, uh, that sort of thing. If you had never read the Bible and Jesus just uttered this statement, you must be born again, Nicodemus' response, I think, is right in line. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and, keep, and be born, can he? And so we see that this is just astounding talk. And Jesus answers him in verse 5 and says that there's two things that are needed to be born again. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so what we see, what is needed... To be born again is to be born of water and to be born of spirit. Now, if we had time and if we were going through the book of John, um, we would pause here uh, quite a bit of time and talk about what does Jesus mean when he says that you must be born of water. And there have been many misconceptions. Um, I, and so I'm just going to real quickly get to the chase and then we're going to uh, I want to see where I want to show you where I think Jesus again comes back to this idea um, of being born of water. Um, but I, I, think, I think it's pretty clear um, from studying John, the book of John and the Bible as a whole that when Jesus is talking here about being born of water, he's talking about repentance. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about repentance and being washed clean. Um, what we see is we see these parallels in this chapter, in this uh, in this dialogue with Nicodemus, and what Jesus does is he says you must be born of water and you must be born of spirit. He talks quite a bit about what it means to be born of the spirit. And I think in verses like John 3.16 and John 3.21, he tells us what it means to be born of water. And so we know John 3.16, right? Hopefully. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not... Uh, perish but have eternal life and then in verse 21 
but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. And he's contrasting that, that there by saying those who have not been born again, those who have not been washed, they don't come into the light because their deeds are evil and they want them to be hidden. What is the reason why we would expose our deeds, our sinful deeds, to an almighty, holy, righteous God? Except that we know that as a believer, when we come into His presence, when we confess our sins to Him, what does He do? He washes them away. He washes them away. So, I think when Jesus talks here about water, He's talking about repentance. Where I want to spend some time is what, what is meant by the Spirit. That, that in, in, able, in order to be born again, you must be born of the Spirit. Let's look at verse 6, because Jesus gives us an answer of what this means. In verse 6, he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so what we see is that Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth and not a uh, physical birth. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must have a new heart to be born again. And we know that human nature has been so mired by the fall that man's heart must be changed so that he can enter into the kingdom of God. Martin Luther has a great quote on this passage, and he says this. And it's, it's, it's packed so full, so I just want, I'll probably say it two times so that you can hear this and understand what Martin Luther is saying. He says, My doctrine concerning these verses is not of doing or and of leaving undone. So it's not of anything that you do or of anything left undone or that you don't do. But, and I love this, but of being and becoming. So Martin Luther says, talking about these verses, it's not of something that you do or don't do, but it's based on who you are and who you are becoming. So that it's not a new work to be done, but the being new created. Not the living otherwise, but the being new born. What Luther is saying is that Nicodemus represented the best of the Pharisees, trying to work uh, to, earn their, to earn their salvation by their own effort. But the gospel, the gospel is about being born again, being being something that God creates. God changes us. God makes us a new creature. And we see, so that's the first thing that Jesus tells us about what it is meant by being born of the Spirit. The second thing we see, and I have said in our uh, studies in Romans 9, that looking at this passage in John 3, you need to be a meteorologist, jokingly. But we see next in verse uh, uh, 7 and 8, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now what you've got to know here is that in Greek, uh, this, is, this is interesting, in Greek, the same word used for spirit is the same word used for wind and the same word used for breath. That's the connotation of it. And so 
what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus is that there's a little word play here. That he's interchanging this, that the spirit is like the wind. And what he tells us, notice what he tells us about the wind in verse 8, is that it blows where it will. Now, how do we translate that other than this? That the wind is free to do as it wishes. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you can't control the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You see and you hear its effects, but you can't control it. So it is with the Spirit that we see and we hear the effects of the Holy Spirit, but we can't control it. It is a work. The Holy Spirit comes and blows and does as it wishes, being part of the Trinity. It doesn't do anything apart from what God would have it to do. But notice the, the imagery here of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. In order to be born again, you must be born of spirit, which is like the wind that comes in and it blows and it does as it wishes. And what you see, what you see, what you should be reminded of is that we saw this same thing in Romans chapter 9. Where, where in Romans chapter 9, it's talking about that God is the one who, who, who regenerates man who chooses man. We saw this in Romans chapter 9. We saw this exact same doctrine. And, and hold on. Because it gets even better than this. Um, so, so he says, so it is with the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And, and then we have in verse 10, and, and I don't know if you've ever wondered why Jesus responded like this, but I, I want to help you out here, that Jesus responds in verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Because I think most of us as Christians can read these verses and we don't understand what Jesus is trying to say. And so there must be more in this text than what we see. And the more in this text than what we see is the fact that Jesus is going right after Nicodemus and his education and is telling him, you know, when Nicodemus, when I talk about the wind, it should bring something to your mind. And, and I think what Jesus was quoting here and was saying that should have brought to Nicodemus's mind was uh, uh, the prophecy in Ezekiel. Uh, and I want to read a, a couple of passages from Ezekiel to you in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. It says, and I will give them one heart. Notice this. I will put a new spirit within them and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances and do them. They will be my people and I shall be their God. And then later in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Notice that imagery there. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then in chapter 37, 1 through 14, uh, many of you know this prophecy where Ezekiel is prophesying of the, of the valley of dry bones and 
Jesus over and over again says, I am going to breathe, or God says, I'm going to breathe life into these bones. Notice the word breath to breathe life into these bones. And it culminates in chapter, verse 14. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. And so what I think that Jesus is doing here uh, when he's going after Nicodemus and he says, you are a teacher of the law and you don't know these things. What Jesus is saying here is you're missing it, Nicodemus. You're missing it. You're missing who I am. You've got to be born of the spirit. And this should call to mind, Nicodemus, this new age that is coming where God has promised through His prophets that He is going to do a mighty work and the Spirit of God is going to move in its people and the Spirit of God is going to change the heart of man and the law is going to be written on their hearts. And Jesus, as we know and we'll see in a minute, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I'm the man. We'll see that in a minute. That's a paraphrase, but that's what Jesus is going to basically tell him. You know, something else that's really interesting here that I love and we see in in verse 11. And I don't know if you've ever caught this before. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, notice the words, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. Again, there's two options. I don't think Jesus is carrying a mouse. And so when he's saying we, actually there's three options. When he's saying we, that's either a reference to the Trinity or or what I think it is, I think it's a reference to Jesus and the prophets. That Jesus in saying this, that Nicodemus, it should have called to mind exactly what Jesus was saying. And so when Jesus says we speak, Jesus is saying The prophets and I are speaking to you this, Nicodemus, the kingdom of God. Notice the other thing. Jesus uses the language kingdom of God over and over in this package, in this scripture. The kingdom of God is here. Very, very interesting. And so we see that Jesus is telling him here that you must be born again. And to be born again, there must be a work of the Spirit. The Spirit has to do something in you. Charles Hodge says this about this passage. There is no self-curative power in man. He will always go on reproducing himself. To become spiritual and fit for communion with God, nothing less is required than the entrance of the Spirit of God into our hearts. In one word, we must have that new birth of the Spirit which our Lord twice described to Nicodemus. So, it doesn't stop there, though, does it? And so the second part of what I want you to see, and again, this should call to mind Romans 9 and 10 uh, to you. The second part of what I want you to see, the second part of how to be born again. So we see that to be born again, you've got to be born of the water and the Spirit. And then we see the second part of how to be born again. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus on, on this front is, in order to be born again, the thing that you must do, Nicodemus, it has everything to do with what you do with me. And everything to do with what you do with Jesus. And if you notice at the end of chapter 9 last week, what did we address? We, we addressed the word stumbling block. That behold, I will lay 
a stumbling block. And here we see Jesus does the same thing with Nicodemus. Look at verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And Jesus, what He is doing here, is that He is predicting the cross. And something that is just kind of, that just kind of, rattles home with me as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin here, a, a member of the, the Pharisees, this very group that will go after Jesus. And he's telling him that Nicodemus, you may not get this now, but there will be a time when I will be lifted up. I will be lifted up. And it's either going to be your salvation or it's going to be your stumbling block. So you Pharisee, you member of the Sanhedrin, you are going to either put me to death. When you look at that cross, you're either going to look at that cross and say, see what we've done, we're saving Israel from this heretic, or you're going to look upon that cross and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Either you put me to death or you recognize that I die for you. And what I just want to say today, that we are faced with the same thing. We know from Scripture that it is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so that when we look at the cross today, it's the same thing. Either we look at the cross, we look at the cross and say, eh, you know, the world probably needed to be gotten rid of that man. Or we look at the cross as it meaning everything because my sin was taken care of there. So what we see is that something must happen for this new birth to occur. Something must happen for Nicodemus to go from calling Jesus rabbi, good teacher, to savior. Something must happen. You must be born again. The Spirit must work. And it doesn't leave us there, but in verse 16, we see this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So notice, notice, if you've been with us for a while as we've gone through the book of Romans, what do we say? That man is justified by what? Faith. What does John 3.16 tell us? Man is justified by faith. That the only response of man is to look to Christ and to believe in Him. Notice this also. And, and children, you can help me with this. God so, what's the next word? Loved the world. Isn't this the ultimate display, again, of God's mercy? Remember in Romans chapter 9, over and over and over, what we talk about is that what does man deserve? We all deserve hell. We all deserve to be separated from God. What does God do? Out of His love, God gives mercy. Look at verses 17 and 19. For God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Notice why not. He who believes in Him is not judged. 
he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. And so what you see again in the book of John and again, what we saw in Romans is that when Paul and when Jesus looks at humanity, he sees a fallen bunch of folks who are guilty, who are culpable, who are responsible for their sins and who are separated from God. But praise be to God that God had mercy, that God had mercy and he sent his son Jesus to die so that so that those who's who see Jesus for who he is and put their faith in him and believe in him can enter into the kingdom of God. Notice the second thing here. And I love this. Uh, Kids, you can help me out with this one again. For God so loved the world. Good job. God so loved the world. Think about as he's talking to Nicodemus, this member of the Sanhedrin, whose belief structure says that you've got to be either you've got to be either a Jew or you've got to go through these uh, ceremonial things and become a Jew to be one of God's children, to be in the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus wrecks his world by saying that God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile both. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. In the very next chapter, we see Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman at the well. I love it. As we go throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus meets with, uh, I'm going to ask kids, who was the wee little man? The wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus, all right. Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. He He was the worst of the worst. Not only that, but we see Jesus going to a centurion guard, a Gentile. A Gentile. And so Jesus' ministry... Jesus' ministry, the other thing that we see, and this parallels what we have in the book of Romans, is that Jesus is telling Nicodemus, my ministry isn't to the Jews only. My ministry is to usher in the kingdom of God, which is a heavenly kingdom, and at that kingdom will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So, these wonderful, wonderful verses... And we know, so what Jesus is telling us here, is we know that the Spirit of God has worked in us. And we know that the Spirit of God has helped us in our weakness when we see someone responding to Jesus as Savior of the universe. So, how was someone born again? The Spirit of God comes to them and helps them, opens their eyes, and they place their belief and their faith in Jesus. Um, And in many ways, and this is all I wanted to kind of do, in many ways, what we see is this divine mystery played out again in John chapter 3. Jesus doesn't tie it all up with this nice bow. We just see this divine mystery of God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. And we see this all throughout Romans chapter 9 as well, don't we? we the, some of the parallels uh, towards ending. Kids, that doesn't mean that we're going to end right now. But towards ending, some of the things that we see is a Jewish man resting on his Jewishness. 
We see that in Romans chapter 9. We see, we see justification being a big issue and that it's by faith and not by works. And we see that all throughout Romans. We see it in Romans chapter 8 and 9. We see that salvation is a work of the Godhead. It's, it's a work of the Spirit decree, the God's decree through the operation of the Spirit. We see that on the forefront of Romans chapter 9. We see that the people, us, that there is real responsibility, there is real sin, there is real unbelief, and that God is not unjust in that. And we also see that there is a call to repentance. That what, what's, what we're not left with is, so just hang out, don't do anything, and one day you might just wake up and be a Christian. No, there is a call that Jesus puts out to repentance. He says to believe so what I want to end with today is I want to talk just a little bit about um, evangelism you know several months ago maybe even a year or so ago now at the beginning of our growth groups you know one of the decisions we made as elders is that if you're in a growth group um, one of the things that happens is that uh, we give out questions Gary always does it. When I remember, I give out questions. Um, but one of the things we've asked you, the first question we've wanted you to talk about in growth group is, is what? It has to do with evangelism. Have you shared your faith this week? How has that gone? Uh, and, and one of the reasons we wanted to do that is because we wanted to keep this in the forefront of your brain. This is our job as Christians. We are to be, um, we are to be going forth and... Uh, 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 making disciples. It's what we are called to do. And, and, and one, two things that I think come from this section that I want us to remember, and I want, us, I want it to be on the forefront of our brain, is that for, for someone to, to come to know Christ, there are two things that must be there that, that I think that we learn from this text. Number one is we must be, as we are sharing the gospel we must be depending on God to open the eyes of the person we're sharing the gospel with and to change their heart so that they can see Jesus for who He is. And so I think we must be praying in evangelism. We must be praying. We must be depending upon the Lord for that. And the other thing, and I see this as a, a weakness in evangelism these days, is that we must actually say to someone, you must believe and put your faith in Jesus if you want to be born again or become a Christian or whatever word you use. And you should ask someone, do you believe? So much of evangelism that goes on these days is just a type of relational evangelism that never gets to the point. Where there's, we never ask somebody, we never say to them, will you put your faith in Christ? Do you believe? Do you want to make this commitment? However you want to say that. And I think we must, we must take this to heart and we must do this because it's biblical. It's what we've seen from the text. And th this is not the sidestep. You know, many people are saved and we could raise our hands in here. Many people are saved from very bad evangelism. Right? One of my favorite stories is a pastor who talks about when he was in high school, uh, he led a friend to Christ and it evolved a fire jolly rancher in hell. 
was kind of the, his leaning into the gospel. Hey, that Jolly Rancher's hot. Do you want to spend eternity where it's hotter? And not only is he amazed that the guy said no and accepted Christ, but the other guy's now a pastor. And despite the horrific theology, the horrific everything about that evangelistic episode, that God did something miraculous. And so I want you, don't buy fire Jolly Ranchers and go to the mall. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But what I want you to do is to, to relax a little bit and to tell you, you have, if you're a believer, you've got two things and all you have to do is be willing to open your mouth. You have your story of what God has done in your life. The imperfect completion it is not yet completed, right? We are still imperfect. We're still in progress. Don't try to trick somebody and say, hey, I've got no problems in my life. You become a Christian and you're just great. No, that's not realistic. But tell them what God has done in your life. How you were a sinner and how he saved you and how he is still working on you. You are becoming what you will be. You've got your story. The other thing you have is you have the gospel message. That, that all of us are sinners that were separated from God. That Jesus Christ came and He lived a perfect life. That he, uh, he died on the cross to bear our sins. He was buried and in three days He rose from the grave. And He will come back again. And that if you put your faith and trust in that Jesus died for your sins, you will be saved. We know that, right? We know that. So you have that. And, and you know... Please hear me say this. I love apologetics. The danger of apologetics, when you get into apologetics, apologetics is the, the study of kind of the argument of uh, God for the purpose of evangelism. The only problem with apologetics I have is that I've seen the study of apologetics freeze people. And it freezes people because... There are questions that they are afraid that people will ask that they cannot answer, and so they don't do evangelism. And I want to go back to this text. <laughs> How is someone born again of the Spirit that God opens the eyes? Does God use apologetics? Yes, but I want to give you courage. Courage. It is God's work. You don't have to know everything. If you had to know everything, probably none of us would be in this room. None of us would be in this room. Nobody knows everything. But if you had to be at a certain level, many of us would not be in this room. So, will you um, commit to something with me uh, this week? And I've, I've, I've asked you to do this before, but I want to ask you to do this again. And the goal um, in studying this and, to, and in seeing the parallels between uh, the book of John and the book of Romans is to bring out these two elements that are so mysterious to us. God's sovereignty, God's election and man's responsibility and to encourage you, to encourage you in your boldness in evangelism. And so I, I just want to ask you to take a very small step this week. Can you begin to think of someone in your life this week, today, I want you to do it now, who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior? 
And the next thing that I want you to do is commit to pray for them. Commit to pray for them. Commit to pray that God would open their eyes and that they would see Jesus for who He is. And I would also ask you to commit to be available. Commit to be available that if God gives you that opportunity for you to open your mouth and for you to uh, tell them about what God has done in your life and tell them about the gospel message, there's no greater miracle that could happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your interaction with Nicodemus. God, we thank you that in this account, in John chapter 3, God, that we see this truth that you run all throughout Scripture that is beyond our comprehension, and that is the, your work, the work of your Spirit in regeneration, the work of your Spirit in saving sinners, and the call that we are to put forth to call people to believe. Our responsibility, our responsibility not only in going and proclaiming the good news as we will hear over and over in Romans chapter 10, but also the responsibility of man to respond to the gospel message. So God, I pray that you would create a boldness in us, a boldness in, in, that's rooted in that we know uh, who it is that saves sinners. And God, a boldness that knows what we're here for, and that's to spread your word, to be little evangelists. And God, I pray that, God, that we would take seriously the thought of praying for a lost loved one or a lost friend and being willing to open our mouth and to share what God has done in our life. God, we thank you that you give us these opportunities. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.